Well, hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We are broadcasting on the Big Talker 106.7 FM here in the morning every Saturday at 10 o'clock Eastern. I am one of your hosts, D.I.L. Ososki, reporting to you from Vienna, Austria, from the hills and uh, the beautiful mountains that surround us. And I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague, David Clement, out in Toronto. David, sir, hello. How goes it? It is going well. It is, it's been a scorcher for the past week, uh, temperature-wise. So I kind of feel like I'm on a tropical vacation in my home. Well, we don't have that much left in summer. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to have to enjoy it for the moment. Um, so it's, it's going to be a, a very special program. Um, as always, we try to line up the best guests for everyone who uh, is listening to the program. And uh, once more, you might be listening live on the radio on the Big Talker, or maybe you've subscribed to the podcast at ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. Uh, but we have a guest that we wanted to interview. Uh, we had a great conversations last week. The theme of the episode was justice. I think we had very good, interesting debate and conversations, and we want to continue that uh, with someone who is uh, very well known in North Carolina, specifically to the Big Talker. He is himself a radio talk show host. Um, we're talking about Lenny McAllister. He is the director of Western Pennsylvania at the Commonwealth Foundation. He is someone who has been on radio. Uh, he's basically been all over the media. He's, he's been on many different programs, he even has his own C-SPAN archive. I'm very jealous of. Yes. Um, and a wiki. He's got a wiki. This, right. Yeah, he does have a wiki. I mean, he, he, I'm sure our audience uh, will play the clip in, in just a moment here, but I can't help but listen to him talk and in the back of my head think we're going to see him in some very prominent role someday. Um, yeah. I just uh, – I left the interview, and, and I won't do too much talking about it in advance of it, but left the interview going, okay, well, this guy is, is on to something special. He is going to uh, – I think he's going to be uh, a big name uh, to come for those who are interested in politics. So uh, we can uh, roll to, to that clip, and, and Jamie, play the interview. Yeah, that's right. This cut goes out to all y'all that's been missing us for mad years. One love, yo. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. We are very delighted uh, to have on the line Mr. Lenny McAllister. He's the director of Western Pennsylvania for the Commonwealth Foundation, a great free market think tank. Over the years, he's appeared on television, many different programs, on the radio, and he's very well known to the North Carolina community. He was a pitcher at Davidson College. I know he's a proud alumnus of that. Uh, he is also the author of the book, Diary of a Mad Black, Proud Young Conservative, Editorials, Essays, and Articles from a Hip-Hop Republican. Lenny lives in Pennsylvania, and uh, he's one of the most interesting guys to follow if uh, you want to see what's happening with education reform, if you want to see what's happening with changing our dialogue and the way forward. I think Lenny is a great voice and wanted to have him on the program. So Lenny, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me here. It's good to be back on The Big Talker. The last time I was on The Big Talker was I was still in North Carolina, probably around 2008, 2009. And uh, that was at a time when I used to travel the state as part of the executive committee for the North Carolina Republican Party. And it's just amazing to look back at those times, what's transpired in North Carolina and heck, what's transpired over the world. So uh, thank you for the invitation to come back. Of course. And, uh, you know, a fellow 
fellow son of the state. Uh, always happy to to have uh, have you on, and especially as someone who knows a lot of the the happenings that's happening in our state and just the, the craziness uh, that's bound. So yeah, I guess um, first off, if we want to give you know sort of a, a back intro, you know, how did you how did you end up back in Pennsylvania? What has been sort of your trajectory? Uh, the last couple of years, just to give a, a reintroduction, if we can, to both the uh, Big Talker audience and to the podcast audience. So I started my, I started this century, Y2K, in North Carolina, finishing up at Davidson College. As I like to tell people, it took me 13 years to get a four-year degree. I um, went to school for three years, dropped out, supposed to be a semester, ended up being a decade, came back, Finished up at Davidson in 2002, married my lovely wife of 18 years, Lainey, who was a Charlotte native. And we were in North Carolina throughout the 2000s. 2010, I left the Carolinas to do a radio show, as a matter of fact, in Chicago, WVON, the talk of Chicago. It's on the south side of Chicago, where uh, basically I was one of probably four Republicans living on the south side and probably one of two black Republicans. But I had a radio show there. I worked at Chicago State as the special assistant to the president. I was doing, I was a regular contributor to CNN, doing roughly two to four times a week on CNN, including CNN Saturday morning and oftentimes CNN Sunday morning. Also wrote for the Chicago Defender, also wrote for the root.com, which at the time was a subsidiary of the Washington Post. Did that for several years. And then due to uh, family circumstances, I my son was dealing with some health issues, my, my now 20 year old, who thank goodness is doing very well and is now an MLK scholar at NYU. That prompted me to come back to my native Pittsburgh and help him get through high school. He graduated from my alma mater, Shadyside Academy. And we have been here ever since where I've had an opportunity to do everything from public policy at the Commonwealth Foundation where you and I worked to um, radio, television. I did KDK radio there, host there for a couple of years also ran for Congress, um, was a, we had a significant victory in 2016. We were the first ever congressional candidate to win a Republican nomination by way of write-in vote. Wow. Basically, you have to have a thousand write-in votes in order to win the nomination. It was a very odd year in 2016, as everybody remembers, and people couldn't get their petition signed in order to get on the ballot. Happened with delegates, it happened with me as a congressional candidate. Well, not only did we get the 1,000 votes for the first time in Western Pennsylvania history at the congressional level, we actually tripled the amount. So we were able to show that there's a, an opportunity to have a different type of message should you take it to the people. And since then, I've been working at Commonwealth Foundation. I have started writing for Red State earlier this year, and I'm really trying to um, not necessarily interject my voice into the national conversation, but I think it's a voice that a lot of people wish would be back in the conversation where you can be true to your principles, but also take a, a more stately approach and a more balanced approach and a more welcoming approach to what the solutions need to be to bring all Americans back into one, one fold of being an American people, not a bunch of uh, tribes trying to figure out how to make it work here in the United States. And we'll, we'll go to the one article I wanted to highlight here for all of our listeners. Title is A Roadmap and Back, or sorry, A Roadmap Back and Forward, uh, published on the 31st of May. This is on redstate.com. Uh, you come up with sort of the roadmap of, uh, especially with everything that's happening now with protests across the country and really around the world. I got to tell you, it's uh, lighting up all over Europe and Canada as well. 
uh, you come up with like a roadmap with specific policy prescriptions. I think that's that's one reason I wanted to have you on is like you've actually sat down and said, here are the legislative things that we can actually do now to alleviate some of the problems that protesters are discussing and talking about and a roadmap going forward. Um, so if you could just like explain that a little bit. Uh, first one, obviously economic empowerment. Second is education, equality, constitutional citizenry, and then quality of life enhancement. If you could just go through some of the ideas there that you listed. Well, I, I think that people are, are feeling the angst right now and, and they're, they know that they're upset. But as I've heard earlier this week, it's about going from anger to action. So when you start looking at some of these things, the economic opportunity, the, the constitutional citizenry, the true essence and embracement of the fact that we are all American citizens, there are certain constitutional rights that we're going to enjoy, and there's a way to respect those rights but still have law and order, still have a civilized society, and still be able to optimize the resources and talents in all different parts of our, of our country. The reason why I laid it out from economics to education to a sense of civil rights and then moving forward from there is because those are the things that people are missing right now. And the divisiveness that we have seen with the two different Americas when it comes to the criminal justice system or to the occupational gaps that we see between blacks and whites in America, or even if you look at the, the state of education between what you see with public schools versus those that go to other schools. And whether it's in North Carolina where you have some um, scholarship programs here. We have a little bit more of a robust one in Pennsylvania, and there are other states that do it even better than we do, such as Florida. When you start talking about how do you start bringing people back together, no one's talking about specific solutions. They're willing to point fingers. They're not willing to look at solutions. So I wanted to show folks that there's a way back to what America could be and what we say we want to be, but also forward. How do we move forward past this moment in time? There are a lot of people that feel as though this is never going to get any better than this. And, I, and I'll be honest with you guys. I think part of the reason why you're seeing so much frustration and so many protests, because people are saying, we keep doing this. It's never going to get better. I wanted to show people that it can get better. We moved through the 1960s. We got past the Civil War. We got through Jim Crow. We got through 9-11. We got through the malaise of the 1970s. If you study American history, there's always a way to get through those tough times. And it starts with good legislation, but it only comes with good legislation and sound, inspiring leadership. Now, ideally, we'll have a new generation of leaders that can come up and provide that inspiration so that the good legislation has a chance to take root and create a better America. Oh, that's great. And, and uh, I would really... Um ask all of you guys, we'll link to it in our show notes, this mm -hmm. article specifically that, that Lenny discussed. He's got a lot of points, uh, but I think David is hot on the mic. So I'll let him ask. Yeah. That. Yeah. I, I, you bring up leadership and you have a unique view uh, from kind of the center right or the Republican party. Many critics would say that the, the party of Reagan is gone. The Republican party has lost its way. Um, do you agree with that viewpoint? Um, do you, what, do you, what do you think is next for the ideas that you've kind of outlined and how they're received by Republicans and how do we get, to, I mean, some of my own biases are coming through here in this question because I'm not necessarily the biggest um, Trump fan. Um, has the Republican Party lost its way and what is the future of the party and actually advocating for some of the ideas that you've put forward? 
Well, David, I think, number one, I think both parties have lost their way. I do think the Republican Party has lost its way, but I also think the Democrats have lost their way. I think that um, when you start looking at some of the, the, the gyrations that the Democrats go to to try to keep the black vote where you have Joe Biden saying you ain't black if you're even considering who you're going to vote for, but then you also have Nancy Pelosi with Kente Claw kneeling down in a, you know, a, 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 you know, extra scene that was cut out of um, Black Panther a couple of years ago. This was, you forgot, this was the congressional scene where all the old white people bowed down to Conchella in Wakanda, and it looked like something staged out of something from a Marvel movie. When you see that type of machination, but you still also remember, and I take people back to this, the Democratic Party at one point in time had the first African-American president the highest level of political capital that any president has ever had, aside from George Washington himself, you had both chambers of Congress and it was veto proof. It was a super majority. And these things didn't get done. It's very hard for the Democratic Party to stand on a high moral ground. Now, if you look at the flip side, the Republican Party has cast aside many of its traditional principles, not necessarily just on domestic issues, but let's look at international trade. We were very much an anti-tariff party until Donald Trump told us how great tariffs were. And so the majority of Republicans now say, yes, tariffs are great. But when you look at what's transpiring with international trade, it hasn't necessarily brought the jobs back that we said it was going to bring back. It hasn't necessarily brought back the economic vitality that we said it was going to bring back. And it hasn't closed the gaps between the poor and the rich the way we were told it was going to help do that as well. So, yes, I think both parties have lost their way. I think there is a way back, though. I think there was a time, and this is one of the things I've tried to do with my career. I've worked at the RNC under Michael Steele. I've worked on the campaign trail for Congressman Richard Burr, which a lot of people don't remember that he was a congressman until 2004. I was on the United Way executive board, um, advisory board, with a not yet House Speaker of the House slash U.S. Senator Tom Tillis back in the day, but I also was on the South Side of Chicago working at Chicago State with a, a African-American Democrat that was an advisor to Roots. I also was a special assistant to Jesse Jackson at Rainbow Push who traveled with him on civil rights tours and also did some marches with him, including marches against Stop and Frisk. You can be a principled Republican and look at issues and say, what should voting rights be for all Americans that are American citizens over a certain age? I had that that conversation that I worked with the NAACP's president at the time, Ben Jealous, who eventually ran for governor of Maryland. We were congruent with that, but also be able to look at criminal justice reform, look at economic reform and say, these are conservative free market principles that make sense across our delineations in America. We don't know our conservatism as well as we think we do. The challenge to the modern conservative in America is you need to get deeper into your conservative thought and you need to be able to show people why it can work. Not necessarily where you want them to be, but where they are right now. And leaders, inspirational leaders, can go get people where they are and help elevate them to that next level, walk with them arm in arm and help create better communities. That's what I'm hoping for, whether it's throwing out legislative ideas or trying to be a presence that brings people together. We need more people doing that type of stuff. And Lenny, I, I know that you're often uh, testifying. You're often testifying, and, and you're able to get a lot of these ideas passed um, in Pennsylvania. So that's great to see. Uh, one thing I wanted to uh, point to specifically that you mentioned is you talk about qualified immunity. Uh, you talk about the violation of civil rights and many constitutional rights, specifically in the Black community. Um, sort of, what is your 
What is your take on what's happening right now in Minneapolis with talk of defunding or disbanding or who knows whatever they're doing with the police department? And it seems as if a lot of this is missing, like the real conversations of how do you address like the specific things that police officers do in our, our current American life that is against our rights and does disproportionately impact African-Americans in specific cities. You know, what is your kind of take on that? Well, it goes back to what we were just talking about. Both sides have lost their way. So rather than talking about, is there an opportunity to, to address qualified immunity, something that was basically created in the 1960s, it's not something that's constitutionally found. When you start talking about a specific police item or something that, in, that impacts policing, something such as stop and frisk, which is a police tactic that's disproportionately used against African-Americans with less than a 1% arrest rate with a conviction, and even less than that, where stop and frisk turns up a weapon. Talking about that is not the same as saying defunded the police, send all the money to the schools, and we're going to basically send police out there with 70% of the, of the protection that they had maybe two, three years ago. Plus, it's also talking in a, in a vacuum, guys. And this is one of the things that people forget. It's not that long ago where we had ISIS cells creating chaos on the American homeland. 9-11 was only 20 years ago. If you have another cell that tries to take out a, 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 a tries to enact, if you will, a terrorist threat, a terrorist plan, New York City subway, remember, we almost had the bombing in, in um, Times Square in 2010. We had near, near chance incidences in Dallas and Pittsburgh and Chicago. We had, unfortunately, incidences in California. If you have an uprising of that, again, taking advantage of the unrest domestically in America, who's going to respond to that first? It's going to be the local police departments. It's going to be the local agencies before the feds can get there, before the National Guard can get there, or dare I say, heaven forbid, the active military gets there. And do you want them keeping you safe with, you know, enhanced water guns and water pistols? Or do you want them to be able to confront that type of threat? You can appropriately fund the police, but make sure they have the resources that take on that type of threat in the 21st century and not use those type of weapons against Americans purporting their First Amendment rights. You can do both. And again, that goes back to the both sides have lost their way, we're retreating to our corners, which means it's the extreme of the philosophies from the right and from the left. And you don't find any type of common ground. It doesn't make sense from one side to the other and back and forth. There's a way to do this. And I think Minneapolis has some good conversations going on. You see conservatives talking about getting rid of qualified immunity. You're starting to see conservatives such as um, in the National Review just a, just a little while ago saying we were wrong on stop and frisk. It has not reduced crime. It's only violated civil rights and we can bring the crime rate down through other ways. So people are having the right conversations, but unfortunately you're starting to also see that retreating back into the separate camps where one are saying the police have to have every tactic possible, which is not necessarily the case because we still have a constitution. And then there's the other side saying defunded the police because they're all racist and they're all bad. And we know that's not true either. There's a way to come common ground, have common sense, and still take substantive steps towards a better future. And do you think that maybe some of this comes down to focus and scope for law enforcement? And when I ask that question, I mean the, the types of things that 
law enforcement are kind of incentivized to focus on. Using stop and frisk as an example, more often than not, although it's done under the umbrella of, of maybe finding potential uh, firearms or weapons, um, more often than not, it was used to find small amounts of relatively harmless cannabis in, in, in um, many examples. Do you think maybe some of the conversation should be shifting uh, in terms of where police interact with, with citizens and, and what their focus is? Because when you bring up the example of terrorism, in my head, it's like, well, that's a no-brainer. That's violent crime. Um, if someone is robbing my house, obviously I want to be able to call someone to be able to show up to the house and I hope that they're armed. Um, but the flip side of that is that we have a lot of interactions between citizens and police um, that are, let's say, for victimless crimes or petty crimes um, that can often turn violent. Is there a solution maybe in that mix in the policy discussion? There is, and I think part of it is is better training. I was on a call just last night with Americans for Prosperity and several other groups, including the ACLU, where we were talking about how many laws are in the criminal code, just say, for example, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where it's exploded, 1972 is around 260. Now it's well over 1,000. So when you start having all of these multiplying crimes, some are overlapping on top of another, some are duplicates. Now you have police officers that are trying to be quasi-lawyers, as well as police officers, as well as social workers, at a time where they are demonized by a large portion of the population and with the background where many communities don't trust the police and vice versa based on some implicit bias. When you take that into consideration, one of the things that you can do is say, okay, can we lessen the amount that the police are interacting with the public so that when there is a true interaction, it is a valid interaction, and we can still focus on keeping both sides of the badge safe. If we keep the police officers safe, we can keep the citizens safe, make sure that everybody goes home after an appropriate interaction. For example, um, Sandra Bland, who died under mysterious circumstances in Texas, she was incarcerated over a traffic stop that originated with failing to use a turn signal. I found out last night that in Texas, you can be incarcerated for that crime if the police officer feels that it escalates to a point where arrest and incarceration is necessary. Now, of course, incarceration would be temporary, arrest, book, let her go. Of course, we know what happened to her when that transpired. They tried to pass the Sandra Bland Act in Texas. They got some good reform, but the one aspect that led to her demise, which was she was arrested because a traffic stop where she didn't use her turn signal escalated into, you know, frustration with that offense, that's still on the books. So you still will have police officers throughout one of the largest states in the United States interacting with citizens and knowing that that's an option based on the fact that somebody didn't use a turn signal. When you start looking at those type of incidences, you start talking about stop and frisk. You know, it's no coincidence that African-Americans are arrested and convicted of drug possession anywhere from four to 10 times the amount of white Americans in the United States of America. For, of course, it varies from state to state, but it's no coincidence if you see that stop and frisk is a legal reality. It's been struck down in New York City, and there are some instances where it's looking to be struck down nationally based on Fourth Amendment constitutional grounds. When you start talking about that, if that's something that could be struck down, police officers can go back to probable cause rather than suspicious cause. And there's a big difference with that. 
that can keep them safe, that can have them focus their, their precious time and resources on true crime, crime that does lead to an assault or to a, a tragic death, while also keeping more citizens safe. Lenny, I yeah, want to go to one part in um, your book. Uh, this is Diary of a Mad Black Proud Young Conservative, and we'll link to that as well. And you talk about the that American was, experiment. Hold on. That was written, before you ask that question, that was written mostly at two places, a, the Panera in South Park in South Charlotte and the Dunkin' Donuts at Exit 33 in Mooresville, North Carolina. So I just want to make sure I'll throw that shout, that proud Tar Heel shout out there for oh, that. Wow. But go ahead, please. Oh, nice. You weren't far from Lake Norman then, so good man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in your, in your book, one thing you talk about a lot is the American experiment and sort of the, this radical thing that we've been able to put together over the years, you know, over 200 years of history. There's been strife. There's been anguish. There's been slavery, civil war. And we're at like this unique point where people are having to have dialogues, you know, in civil communities. And a lot of people just don't know how to do that, you know, and I think not as many people are well versed in sort of the American experiment and how everything has come to be. I'm just kind of wondering what is the current state of, uh, of our nation? If uh, President McAllister was there giving the State of the Union, uh, you know, kind of tell us what it's like, not just looking at government policy, but just interactions between different groups, socioeconomic groups, people in different states, different communities. How is that looking in 2020? If I were President McAllister giving that State of the Union, a lot of what I would focus on is we still have much more in common than we have different. That the concerns of people in Du Bois, Iowa are still very similar to what you see in Detroit, Michigan, or what you may see in Washington, D.C. That people still want their kids to be educated, that people still want to be able to find jobs that fulfill them, and they want to be respected in regardless of the path that they take in their lives. That we can still respect the auto mechanic just as much as we respect the congressman or just as much as we respect the city councilman or the preacher. And that that's what makes us American. That's what brings us together. That's how we're able to help each other through the toughest of times. That there's a common sacrifice, but there's also a commonality in regards to where we're going as a society. And that the Constitution provides the foundation for what we can expect from each other, what we expect our government to protect for us, and how we expect our government to treat us considering those God-given gifts. And those God-given gifts are for every American. And I would even take it one step further and say there's a, a, a human decency that we're supposed to extend to everybody we interact with in America, even if they're not an actual citizen, if they're here on a green card or they have some other type of status. And I would try to pivot us to making that the foundational viewpoint that we view our world in moving forward. Then from there, we can talk about how do we make sure that we accomplish that goal in your life, whether you live in a town of 500 or you live in a city of over 5 million, and these are ways to do it. Then I would get into some of the things that I talked about in the article from a couple of weeks ago, the economic um, aspirations and initiatives, what we can do with education to close the education gap that's been very, very difficult to close over the decades. What we can do in regards to securing civil rights and making sure we get rid of this sexism and racism and some other things that we see in our society, but do it in a way that's aspirational, reminding us that we truly are all in this together, but through a sense of American respect 
and love for each other as an American people that's going to lead the world with that versus just looking at us as we're divided, we're diverse, and we don't know how we're going to get through it from here. So on, on some of that division, um, you mentioned, and I, I want to just go into one of these examples that, you, that you've brought up. Um, can you explain to our listeners on the side of closing the education gap, what that entails and what that looks like? Because from my point of view, that sounds like something that is probably one of the more pressing issues because that is the, the ground that you kind of build your future career on and your earning opportunities and your ability to uh, build wealth and things like that. What does closing that gap look like? What do we need to do policy-wise to ensure that there isn't that disparity? I think it's a, a two-track approach to that. I think number one, in the short term, you have to look at expanding uh, um, educational opportunities for all students. Long-term, yes, you can address some of the problems that you see in the public education systems throughout the country, but those problems have been around for decades. Dare I say 100 years that's been rooted into the system. You're not gonna fix 100 years of problems within a semester or two. However, you can address a generational issue when it comes to education within a family or within a community with school choice. You expand the education opportunities, ensure that kids are able to take the tax dollars that their communities are putting into the pot, if you will, to look at what's the best education option for that child right now. Not letting a zip code be a determining factor as to where they're gonna to go to school from kindergarten through 12th grade. Allowing them to pursue Catholic school, private school, charter schools, public charter schools, or other types of educational options that allows one, there to be a diversity so that people can find the best option for their child. Number two, allow there to be a, a richer sense of competition so that free market principles in education could start rising to the top so that we can eliminate some of the huge classrooms that we are seeing in public schools that disincents people from taking the extra time with the kid that needs it the most. Then while we're doing that, look at the long-term issues that have been bothering public schools for quite some time. Everything from the funding, um, formulas that we see in multiple states when it comes to property tax or being it based on zip codes all the way through towards okay we continue to see this issue of resegregation of public schools and it's happened since before public schools were officially integrated and then the schools continue to be resegregated through moving patterns and the like how do we make sure that we have both of those options moving together in a parallel track so that kids that need to close the gap can do so. We're also here in Pennsylvania talking about things such as back on track ESAs. I wrote an article on, on Red State talking about the Rona. People talk about Corona being the Rona, if you will. I said, well, if the Rona has been a headache, then PEG, the pandemic education gap, is really gonna take out a lot of these communities. We have to make sure that we're addressing quote unquote PEG right now and the way to do that is back on track ESAs to allow those kids that didn't go to school for two months that were already two years behind on their reading and math levels to have an opportunity to close the gap quickly on what they missed, missed during the pandemic and then also use that as a boomeranging mechanism to help them catch up to their classmates so that by the time they get to 12th grade they can adequately pick I want to have a blue collar career. I want to go to college. I want to be a doctor. I want to start my own business as an electrician, et cetera. You, you bring up a really good point in terms of mobility and competition. And I generally get the sense that 
that competition is something that most Americans accept and appreciate in all sorts of other aspects of their life, whether it's where they're going to go to eat dinner or what grocery store they're going to buy their groceries from or list anything else that you do over the course of a week. What do you think some of the hesitation is for that mindset to apply to schooling? Because you do see a lot of pushback. Um, but in reality, at least from my view, the principles are just the same. If you can add some competition, naturally you're going to see people move up the ladder. Um, where do you think that hesitation comes from? Um, what are some of the steps to maybe educate or push back against the naysayers who are so hesitant to the ideas of school, school choice? Well, number one, when it comes to schools and communities, we're extremely colloquial. I mean, we have an expression here in Pittsburgh that people don't like to cross bridges, which is ironic because we have the most bridges per capita of any other city in the world. But if you grow up in Penn Hills, if you make more money from being a teenager and growing up with your family to where you are as an adult, you move in one direction, you move east. If you grew up on the north side and you make more money than what your parents made, you move in one direction, you slightly go north. Nobody wants to cross a bridge just to live in another part of town. It's almost sacrilegious to do that here in Pittsburgh. That's just with buying a house. Now, when you start talking about the resegregation of America, where you've had incidences of, of white flight over the years, where you have people that feel as though I'm never going to be welcomed in certain communities, so they hunker down to where they're used to living, you have these ideologies entrenched. Now, if you go back to the zip code model of schooling, if people are already resegregating themselves as to where they live and where they go to church, you also know the other expression, the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. So if people don't want to move to different areas and people aren't going to church together, what's the likelihood that they're going to go to school together? Now, if they are not going to school together, they're not getting a similar education, you're not using that competition so that people have options, then you find on the yield 15, 20 years later, the, the occupation gaps that you see in places such as Pittsburgh, where an African-American man is more inclined to have a broom and, and a, a dustpan in his hand going to work than he is to put on a button-down shirt. Not even a button-down shirt and a tie, not even any, you know, be a lawyer or anything else. Literally, put on down, putting on a button-down shirt, he is more inclined to have that broom and a dustpan. It's soup to nuts. So what you have to do back to your original question is you have to break that model down. You have to show that not only is it about the competition, it's about the, the re-pursuit of the American dream for all of Americans. And that's what this was all supposed to be about. I think when people are talking about George Floyd and they're talking about the frustration in America, yes, there's obviously something wrong with what happened in Minneapolis on Memorial Day. But it's more than that. The frustration is when do we get to truly chase the American dream? There's a way of doing it without necessarily breaking up windows or, or busting down, you know, breaking down police cars or, or physically confronting the police. But the way you do that is through a true analysis of where are we, what has worked. Education has worked in America. You know, economic development and reinvestment has worked in America. We have seen when we cleave to our constitution that people have more of a sense of stability and, and a sense that there will be justice. And as a result of that, people are more inclined to push harder, to work harder, to work with each other and be more cooperative and collaborative. These are things we need to go back to as well. Use the energy of the protest to bring about some powerful legislation moving forward and implement it in a way that has a true altruistic intent to get the best of America. Because the truth of the matter is, going back to competition, we're competing with a different globe now. 
you know, when we were going through this in the 60s and the 70s, the Soviet Union was a closed market. China was a closed market. India was a closed market. So you start talking about where we are in 2020, India and China both have over a billion people by themselves. They have three times the American market. The Soviet Union is no longer the Soviet Union, obviously. So if we're going to compete and, and remain the global leader economically, politically, militarily, we have to start enriching all of our American talent. We waste too much talent through some of these domestic issues. The way to keep America safe from a national security perspective is to get rid of some of the scourge that we've had in our domestic society for far too long. Uh, Lenny, you spoke about the division between uh, the, the hour of church, and uh, obviously it's a big divide in American society. I think one thing that a lot of people are not very privy to, um, specifically if we look at uh, the black community, is just the complete diversity of opinions. I think uh, that's kind of what Joe Biden, speaking with Charlemagne the God, says, you know, if you don't vote for me, ain't black, all this kind of thing. Uh, but there is actually a very big diversity of opinion that uh, perhaps never really comes out or we don't really see debated, but these kind of things exist, much like in every single community. Indian Americans, uh, specifically, you know, the Irish up in the north, if you have the Hispanics, uh, let's say from Cuba, who have a completely different way of thinking than uh, those who might be in Texas uh, from other countries. Can you just speak about, um, from your position, because you're someone who's a very well-known conservative, uh, you're, you're someone who has had success in multiple states, uh, been able to kind of go around, you know, what is the, the kind of state right now of diversity of opinion, um, I guess, right now in the black community and are more conservative voices also going to have a leadership role as well? Because I think that's, that's one thing that we just never really know. What are the opinions to listen to? Who's getting, gaining a following? And, you know, wh what is the trajectory of ideas to come? I think that there's very much an opportunity for there to be shown that there's a robust and uh, a robust nature of diversity within the African-American community when it comes to public policy, when it comes to politics. The problem is that you find that African-Americans don't think that there's a true diversity of outlets through which they can vote, through which they can support. Now, whether that's because of stereotypical tropes about white conservatives, or there are some instances that play out. There's a, a woman whose name I will not give, who everybody knows, who's a Trump supporter, that compared African-Americans at protests to trained chimpanzees. You know, and I've made a very conscious effort to never say her name again, because I'm not going to give her any more SEO recognition on the internet. But the truth of the matter is, when you see that on that side of the aisle, you can sit there and say, okay, well, that person agrees with me on school choice, but they literally compared my community that's going through this pain and frustration over the years as being trained chimpanzees. So they say, I can't do that. I can't get down with that. Um, when you look at President Trump, who is guaranteed funding for historically black colleges and universities, which we, we have several great ones here in North Carolina, including Central and A&T, but then turns around and gets rid of the consent decrees with police departments, almost immediately upon coming into office when Jeff Sessions was the attorney general. And then you sit here afterwards and you have George Floyd. It's very hard for the average African-American to see, yes, he gave more money to HBCUs and yes, we have the First Step Act. But the flip side is he basically said, police officers, you don't need this burden on you. And then he gave a speech in 2017, if you remember saying, well, you know, if you arrest those guys, you don't you have to duck your head as, as low. You can, you can let them hit their head on the, on the car a couple of times if you need to. 
they see both of that. So they say, you know what, I could agree with that policy, but I can't get down with that. The goal moving forward, I think in 2020 and beyond is, is to capitalize on the frustration that African-Americans are having with the political dynamic overall. They are frustrated with Democrats. They're tired of getting the lip service from Democrats. How can you poll? 90% of African-American primary voters in the Democratic Party in 2020 are for expanded school choice. Every single presidential candidate was against expanded school choice. Poor Cory Booker must have felt like a flapjack because every time you turn around, he was flipping to a new side on the issue and then was out of the race and went back to how he was when he was mayor of Newark and how he was going into being a U.S. senator initially out of New Jersey. There are opportunities to show that you can feel safe taking this position. You know, ideally, we'll get to a point in time where there are African-American candidates in significant roles saying, you can be safe voting for me because I have your community's best interest at heart and I'm still a Republican, and I'm still a principled conservative, and I still believe in free markets. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but African-Americans are showing us collectively that they are looking at those options, and from an ideological standpoint, they agree with that. I mean, Roland Martin's one of the most prominent African-American political commentators in the country. He came to Philadelphia to talk about is school choice the black choice with Commonwealth Foundation just May of last year. You know, Steve Perry was also on stage with us just last year with the charter school movement, the school choice expansion movement out of a city that has some of the biggest economic disparities in the country. People want options. But the next step that we have to take is we show them that there are things they agree with us on. They have to see that we can be true partners through the long term. And then from there, we can have our disagreements, but we have a true friendship, true partnership, and dare I say, a true interaction as, as American citizens that respect each other on both sides. That is Lenny McAllister of the Commonwealth Foundation. Lenny, how can uh, people follow your work, your writing, and, and everything else that you're doing? Well, number one, please, I first of all, I appreciate the time being back here and talking to the good folks in North Carolina. I love them, and uh, I miss the Carolinas. Definitely do. I can tell you my Carolina wife misses some Bojangles as well. So that's <laughs> number one. Um, number two, to follow me on Twitter, very simple. My first and last name, L-E-N-N-Y-M-C-A-L-L-I-S-T-E-R. You can also go to follow me on Facebook. I hope that you will read my um, Red State articles. It will be out twice a, um, twice a week, Sundays and Thursdays, or the initial publication date. Uh, we will also continue to do good work at Commonwealth Foundation with the team there. And I will, uh, my goal and my prayer is to be able to be a, a conduit for change. And I appreciate you both giving me the opportunity to talk about that today. Cheers. Thanks so much, Lenny. All the best to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. God bless you all. Yeah, that's right. This cut goes out to all y'all that's been missing us for mad years. One love, yo. Yeah, that's right. He's got a game. P.E. 1998. If man is the father... The all right, and we're back uh, here on The Big Talker, uh, 106.7 FM. A great interview with Lenny McAllister. Uh, hopefully you guys can continue to follow him on social media. Um, he's been writing... Uh, very diligently and been writing uh, two or three times a week over there at redstate.com. So there's a, a huge presence now of, of actually black conservative voices that they're building over there. Um, so he's definitely one of the stars of definitely that website, but he's uh, very well known all over. And uh, no doubt, as you said, David, uh, we'll probably see him uh, in some grand position sometime soon. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that um, so we, we briefly chatted with him about the amount of interactions with police officers. Like, how do we, we, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. I mean, use the example of Eric Garner, someone who, 
is killed essentially for selling untaxed cigarettes. Um, obviously not a crime worth killing somebody for. Uh, but another thing which I, I haven't seen, I've seen some coverage of it, but it's kind of waned on me, uh, is the question of body cams. And is that something that will help uh, interactions with police officers? And I actually asked a police officer, uh, a neighbor of mine, um, what his wow, take. Okay. This yeah, is good. I, I love original source reporting for Consumer Choice Radio. Let's yeah, go. yeah. So, so I asked him, and I went up to him and said, "Hey, like, I mean, almost a little timid because I'm weighing into somebody else's profession, and." That kind of makes me a little cautious. So I said, hey, like, what do you think about body cams? And his response was immediate. He said, all for it. I'm surprised that every police force doesn't have it. It benefits um, it benefits citizens. And it also benefits law enforcement because it ensures that what, it, that what happens in that interaction um, is maintained, that if it's ever questioned or if there's a complaint, filed against an officer that they have the video evidence to support the um, support their claims on the interaction or it can show that maybe they lied i know that there's one example of a officer who was who had a body cam who was caught planting drugs on uh, on innocent people and oh there's, there's been more than one but definitely yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so it raises this question: Is I mean, there could be considerable cost, but why not go that route in terms of ensuring we have more legitimate and consistent interactions between law enforcement and citizens, especially in the U.S., where there are so many instances where um, where law enforcement officers are just not well trained. I mean, I, I forget which state it is, but I think I think it's maybe Missouri where you have to spend three times uh, longer in training to be an interior designer than you do to be a police officer. Um, obviously, you shouldn't have to get a license to be an interior designer, uh, but you shouldn't have that disparity between the two. And so I wanted to hear your take on that. If you think that body cams are a solution, would they help, are there privacy concerns, things like that? No, I, I think definitely having them uh, is probably a net good, specifically in these circumstances, which, as you mentioned, people, you know, there are interactions with police that do end up with someone being hurt, oftentimes a victim, but there is just as many cases of people who perhaps falsely ac accuse the police of something, and they really have, uh, I mean, not necessarily that they're, they're uh, the small dog and no one's going to believe them, but if you have video evidence that kind of backs up your case, I think that that's helpful for everyone. Um, it does make you think, though, because if we have police officers with body cams, uh, you know, there's a lot of circumstances in which we are met with, um, forgive my my <laughs> forgive my language here, but agents of the state. You know, there are many different interactions we'll have, whether it be with inspectors, uh, whether it be at, you know, local government offices where someone might deny you a service because you happen to be, who knows, black or gay or Jewish or whatever. And, you know, if you don't always have that proof, if they were required to wear one, maybe there'd be something there as well. But then again, it's also the civil liberties type of argument. Who has access to this data? Is this data open source? Is it readily available or is it only available uh, through FOIA request or through some kind of judge, uh, a judge's warrant or order? I think, you know, that's 
that's a conversation for down the line. I think you're, you're right, though, that it should be introduced as an idea that we have these. And it goes both ways. It's about protecting the officer. It's about protecting citizens out there. And I know that uh, the buttons, as far as I remember, there's like a delay. So if you if you try to turn it off, it still takes a minute for it to actually turn off. I don't know if it was built that way or if it's like a safety thing or they just want to make sure that an officer is not about to beat you upside the head and you just hit stop. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, so I've seen some of these concerns, and I think that they're – I mean – we're certainly smart enough to think about safeguards to protect things like privacy or, I mean, one example that was brought up is um, there are a variety of instances where you may say something in the moment and not realize like the ramifications of what you're saying. So if an officer is like, well, have you had anything to drink? Um, And you respond in a certain way, which isn't necessarily truthful or they don't know they're on camera. Um, So there's some consent issues there. But I think you can largely solve them. I mean, if I think of like a traffic stop, the officer approaches the window and rather than the first thing being said, saying, do you know how fast you were going or license and registration being just, you know, I have a body camera on to ensure safety and compliance for both you and myself. And then you go into whatever the stop is. So the person knows, okay, well, I'm on camera. This is a serious um the the level of seriousness in terms of what I say or don't say um, increases, but then I also have that extra level of security, knowing that if there's any shenanigans or funny business, that um, I have that level of protection. And through all of these pr- police brutality instances, I mean, we've seen the power of the camera, right? If, if there was no camera, uh, I don't think that the officer in question gets charged in Minnesota. He probably goes free. He's probably still an active duty officer right now if there's no camera. Um, Because we know the original report said that he resisted arrest and the video showed that he didn't. Um, So it seems like a no-brainer to me. And I obviously wanted to pick your brain and through my own experience here and asking someone who is in that world every day and hearing him say, yeah, this is a no-brainer. It's probably worth the money. Um, I figured I would bring it up, up to you. It'd be interesting to see if any listeners have any feedback. Maybe we're missing something or maybe there's um, a privacy concern that we haven't quite thought of. So if there is, definitely tweet us. Um, and and we'll, maybe we'll revisit this down the road if there are some more nuanced uh, discussions that we missed. And there is uh, on this station, we're on the Big Talker uh, here in Wilmington, North Carolina. And on this station, there's actually a radio show called Blue Line Radio that's dedicated to sort of police issues or police news or, uh, you know, general law and order type news. So, yeah, I, I wonder what the, I'll actually ask a, ask the morning uh, show host, Joe Catanacci, if he's got any insight there that he might have learned from there. I think that's definitely true. And, um, you know, interactions with police, that's something to think about. And I wish we'd go a bit further because um, and I think... Congressman Justin Amash is making this point very well that, you know, there are only these this heightened level of interactions with police because we have so many laws on the books. Lenny mentioned that, too. Just the number of laws that exist out there is a pretext uh, for pulling people over or for asking you for your ID. Now, this is very different um, currently in Europe. In most countries, you know, if uh, an officer asks for your ID, you are required to produce it. You are required in the law 
to always walk around with ID. If you do not have ID, if you're not able to identify yourself on the spot in many European countries, then actually you are brought to jail until they can prove who you are, until you're able to somehow prove that. Actually, our, our colleague Luca Bertoletti has found himself behind the slammer because he was a bit too principled one evening <laughs> and refused to, to give his papers. Uh, but it's very different in, in uh, I would say, common law countries like the United States and Canada, and as far as I know, the United Kingdom, that we, we don't really have this uh, sort of papers bite uh, sort of culture, which is good. But then again, what are all these laws that give the pretext um, to pull people over? I know well, that. And when you quantify this, uh, I don't know. I think it was it was years ago, and I don't know how much the numbers have changed. But the Wall Street Journal basically estimated that your average American commits three felonies a day, um, and so it's like for most people, they hear that and they're like, "How is that even possible?" And then you just list off all of the things that could lead to an interaction with an officer, and you go, "Okay, well." How do we minimize those to the ones that are actually meaningful and dangerous, like burglaries and assaults and all of the things that, if you think like I do, you want the police to be able to show up to and you want them to be well-trained and you want maybe assistance in resolving them, not the guy smoking a joint in a park, not the person vaping too close to a door. Like, it, it yeah, gets, you, you it bring gets up excessive. A you bring up a big point. I mean, look, this is Consumer Choice Radio, and we talk about consumer rights and products and all the rest. And, you know, if we look back to the Eric Garner case in New York City, which was one of the large ones that sparked its own kind of movement, and uh, we all know I Can't Breathe comes a lot from that because uh, he was choked out by a police officer, and he was selling loose cigarettes on the street. And, you know, the black markets that exist out there create the biggest of all pretexts for police officers to pull people over, to call them out, to stop and frisk. Um, <laughs> good, I'm, I'm glad Lenny was able to talk about that because that's, again, a very problematic policy. And it's just getting back to what we want our police officers to do. What do we want them to be doing? And there's even a, an article I read in Marginal Revolution that discussed whether or not police officers are the best people to be patrolling our highways. Um, are police officers actually the best agency to be enforcing traffic laws? Or should we have like an independent traffic uh, enforcement agency that would not have the power of the police, meaning guns, meaning uh, the power to put people in prison? Uh, maybe it's just tickets. Uh, but I guess the counter argument would be that specifically in the United States and Canada, most people drive on the road, they drive on the interstate. That's where they're, I guess that's how you catch people. I don't know. That's uh, it, it's kind of, it's interesting to think about, but you know, people are talking about defunding the police and it's now policy. And uh, this is now becoming a mainstream talking point. So we're, we're not done with this. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's going to be a lot more conversation there. I mean, there's a, there's certainly some nuanced middle ground between defunding the police and having a militaristic um, civil asset forfeiture SWAT team burst through your door with a no-knock raid and shoot your dog. Um, there's got to be some conversation in the middle ground, and I'm sure you and I will uh, will tap into that over the next uh, few months as this conversation progresses. Yeah, and I think uh, one last topic I wanted to bring up here in our last uh, four minutes or so the hour just swung on by, David, um, was um, everything that's happening with the sport of NASCAR. Uh, NASCAR has 
It's coming to my Twitter feed, not for my normal reasons, because I'm following it and all the journalists and all the drivers, but because everyone's talking about it. And that's because NASCAR has undergone a, a very big and dramatic and very public a denouncement of Confederate flags that are at races. So they've come out with a policy now that uh, no Confederate flags can be flown at any racetrack throughout all of the major and minor series. This is uh, obviously making waves. Uh, there's been a very conscious push by many drivers and NASCAR officials in the last couple of weeks to address uh, specifically minority issues, but also talking about the police, talking about Black Lives Matter, uh, one thing about the Confederate flag is actually there were a number of tracks throughout the United States that had this policy already. This is just uh, going above and beyond and making it throughout the entire series. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't make sense, though, I'll be honest, because it's races in Michigan and New York and places that were not part of the Confederacy. It had nothing to do with it. Um, you know, Sometimes it's fans that have it there. I know at the track outside of uh, Charlotte, where I grew up, that racetrack there, there was always a Confederate flag or two that were flying. And uh, yeah, it's definitely good to, to get that down. You know, this is a symbolage of a past, definitely a, a loser in a civil war that was bloody and uh, meant a lot to a lot of people because it meant freedom and it meant the end to slavery, thankfully. Uh, but yeah, great move by a, a sporting league uh, NASCAR. Well, and I think it shows, I think it shows very much uh, to some of uh, for lack of a better word, people in liberal circles who maybe poo-poo NASCAR for being uh, blue-collar or whatever way you want to describe NASCAR, the sport. It's, it's a redneck sport. Just say it. it's a Yeah, there sport. you go. I'm a private redneck. This, uh, so I think it's awesome that that NASCAR has gone so far as to ban what is essentially just a treason towel. Uh, and a representation of wow. the guys you, who lost. I mean, you had, it's, you had the trees and towel. You had that one prepared. I like. It. <laughs> I did. It's just. I mean, look. If you want to fly, if you want to fly your trees and towel, that's fine. But NASCAR is a private entity. They get to make the rules. Uh, but I'd also say that guys, losers don't get participation trophies. So let's not uh, let's not wrap ourselves in. A flag that is so distinctly tied to trying to own other humans as property. Yeah, and we're we're going to hear a lot more. We're going to hear a lot more about the debate, and you know its connotation to history, heritage, you know all the normal talking points. You know, m most U.S. states have no presence of the Confederate flag, at least officially. Obviously, the uh, state of Mississippi is the last holdout. Uh, as they have the Confederate flag that is a part of theirs. Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty sure that's going to change pretty soon. I don't think you can justify that in 2020. I mean, there are all way there are all sorts of ways to celebrate Southern heritage that has nothing to do with chattel slavery. I mean, there, and there are all sorts of things to be proud about in terms of the South and family values and the way and how the culture of being neighborly and the hospital, uh, hospitality of what it means to be a southern gentleman or you forgot the you fought you forgot the biggest one david barbecue barbecue i mean yeah I, yeah actually i'm hoping to have a future guest on who will be able to talk about southern tradition and barbecue because there's a very very rich history and particularly in the african-american community there's like 
super rich history with barbecue, and that's, that's definitely something that we're going to explore. Um, but alas, uh, that kind of does it for us this hour. It's been an awesome hour chatting with Lenny McAllister in the first block, catching up with you, David. And we look forward to catching up with the rest of y'all next week.